On that note, turn in your Bible, whatever translation you brought today, uh, and if it's digital, I'll be in the New King James Version for our scripture reading uh, portion this morning. Uh, And if you could turn in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We have been studying Luke's Gospel now for a few months. We started this journey through the Gospel of Luke before Christmas. And uh, we took a little bit of break for the holiday season. We dug back into this, and we have been journeying through. uh, We recently studied uh, about the baptism of Jesus, a very, very important moment. And Luke turns a corner here right in Luke chapter 4. He is now going to begin to tell us about the public ministry of Jesus. And so from here on out, what we've been studying so far since before Christmas, we've been studying about uh, really the buildup to the ministry of Jesus. There's a lot of detail that Luke puts into the first few chapters of the gospel uh, that he writes. And now we're about to see the beginning of his ministry in public. Uh, Now, just for context and for our understanding, uh, there are four Gospels written in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of them have a different perspective, and they're each trying to communicate something different and distinct about Christ. So as we study all four of the Gospels together, we get a full picture of who Jesus was. One of the things that Luke is trying to do here is show us the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of of Jesus. And then because Luke was a doctor and he was very detail-oriented, he is very interested in lots of details. Now, I say that to you because if at some point I get bogged down into a detail, um, I might just nerd out about a couple of things today. In fact, just so you know, I'm going to read the Bible to you and I'm going to show you some maps. <laughs> I'm so excited. Some of you are like, yeah, maps. And some of you are wondering when lunch is. Okay. So, we're going we're gonna to look at some of the details that Luke talks about today, and then we're even going to continue in this portion of Luke's story even more next week. There's a lot to talk about here. With that said, let's read Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus has just uh, overcome the temptations that came against him, and it says in verse 14, Then he returned in the power of the Spirit, mark that, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And as he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, which we say book here, it was a scroll, so he opens the scroll. When he opens the book or the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And just for your context, what he was handed was the book of Isaiah. What he's about to read is what we would know as the 61st chapter in the book of Isaiah. This is what he finds to read, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, or rolled the scroll back up, 
hands it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he begun, began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I, uh, we're going to dig into this passage in just a few minutes and over the time that we have today. Uh, I have a specific goal for what we want to dig into today. But let's take a look at just where all of this is happening because there's some interesting things here as we take a look. This I, I told you I was going to show you some maps. Here is uh, the first map that I, I want to show to you. is really a picture of the, the known world or the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus. So you can see kind of over here on your left-hand side, you can see up in the top there is Britannia. Uh, you can, so you can kind of get an idea of like where you can see the Italian boot over here. And if you make your way over towards this side of the map, down in the bottom corner, you see where it says Arabia. Just before you get to that part, you see Syria, Judea, that's the part of the map that we are interested in. But you can get a, begin to get a picture of the world and whereabouts Jesus actually was. Now, if we were to zoom in a little bit, I can show you a map that is a picture of the area as it was laid out in the time of Jesus. So uh, this next map is that picture. This is the, the area of Israel of where the people of Israel live and where Jesus did his ministry during his lifetime. Now, I want you to take a, a little bit of a, uh, just focus in for me. You see this kind of blue section over here, that's, that's the sea. And then you see these two lakes. You see the two lakes there, the two blue in the middle of the map? Okay, the larger one is the Dead Sea, okay? So then you go all the way up, and you see another lake in the region of Galilee. And you see that black line that runs down the middle? This is the River Jordan. Now, if you were to uh, zoom in a little bit further, you begin to see in this bottom section just north of the Dead Sea. In fact, the next map should show you a little bit of a, of a zoomed-in view. Uh, of, this is what I want you to see here. You see where it says Jericho right above there and then over towards the, the river? That's where Jesus was baptized. So Jesus is baptized. We just studied this a few weeks ago. And then what happens after Jesus is baptized is he goes into the wilderness. Now, where Jesus goes into the wilderness is, you see where it says Bethany, and then you see a little bit of a mountain range, and then there's Jericho. Somewhere in that area right there was this area known as the wilderness that Jesus actually goes and spends 40 days, just over a month, complete fast. And he's tempted by the devil. So that area of wilderness is where the devil got his butt kicked by Jesus for the first time. That's, that's an exciting area to go to. Uh, it's a wilderness, but that's, that's a picture of where Jesus actually spent this time. Now, when it says at the beginning of this passage that it says that Jesus then returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee... Uh, and here's what I wanted you to catch, is that Jesus then goes north from, so he travels to this area to be baptized, specifically needed to be baptized by John, and this is where John was baptizing, so he goes down there, and then he travels back up to the region of Galilee, which is what this map shows you here. So you can see that there's the Sea of Galilee, you can see Capernaum, and you can see Nazareth. 
Some of these names, if you've read the gospel accounts, will sound familiar to you. These are the places where Jesus did a, a lot of his ministry in this region of Galilee. But specifically, this is where Jesus travels back home in the power of the Spirit. That's actually really, really significant. Uh, and, and that trip, by the way, from the wilderness area to the region of Galilee, or specifically from that wilderness area to Nazareth, is about 80 miles. Now, for you and I, 80 miles is a quick drive down the freeway. But for Jesus, that would have taken on foot somewhere around 26 hours of travel time, of, of walking in his day. Now, I want you to understand that when it says that Jesus traveled from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, he went back up to the region of Galilee. And then it specifically says that he was in the area teaching in their synagogues, plural. And news begins to get out about this guy, Jesus. Luke is actually telling us something really interesting in this moment, is that we, we sort of get this picture that Jesus is baptized, that then he's tempted, and then all of a sudden he's hanging out with disciples, doing miracles, and everybody knows about Jesus, and it's awesome because his podcast is popping off, and his YouTube channel has like a million subscribers, and like this is the picture that we sort of have the feeling that like everyone was reading his newsletter all the time, and people just knew about Jesus, he had 100,000 followers. First of all, these regions were much less populated than we sort of tend to think that they are. Like, we sort of had this idea, oh, Jesus was out in the desert. That's probably like 600,000 people, like, sort of live out in the Antelope Valley. It was probably much less than that. And uh, certainly there was no technology, certainly no cars for Jesus to travel around. But I want you to begin to get a picture of what Jesus was doing is that the idea that Luke tells us that he goes into their synagogues, plural, this means that Jesus didn't just go straight from uh, being baptized to being tempted in the wilderness and then go right up to Nazareth and go to church the next day. Like, he didn't do this all in one weekend. This moment was that Luke tells us that in this middle section of Luke chapter 4 probably took a few weeks. There's Jesus going around different towns and villages. Some of these places would have had 100 or even less than 100 people living in the region. And eventually, after people begin to get an idea of what he's saying, is he's teaching in their synagogues, he's talking about whatever it was that he was talking about, which I'll begin to tell you was the kingdom of God. This was Jesus' main teaching when he would go and teach, was he would teach about the kingdom of God. And so word is getting out, man, this guy, is he's, he's, he's telling us something. He's teaching something. This is why you begin to see that as Jesus then goes to call his disciples, that he's recognized as a rabbi. Luke is telling us here, just in this little bit of a thing that we can kind of skip over, he's letting us know that Jesus is a known teacher at this time. And he was, he was managing to develop a, a, a name for himself, if you will, in a region where there was no Twitter or, or live streaming of his announcements uh, and his messages. So certainly this took a little bit of time. And so then he winds up in Nazareth where it is believed that there was somewhere around 200 people, maybe 300 people living in Nazareth at the time. It is most likely that there was only one synagogue uh, in, the, in the area or in, in the town or village of Nazareth when Jesus actually shows up. And this was the 
area where he grew up. Luke then tells us something really specific. He says that he goes into the synagogue as he had always done, as was his habit or his custom. So there's something here going on that, that Luke is telling us that Jesus seems to have done more than once. So it, you get the idea that he like went to his home church. I grew up in this church. Imagine if I uh, left this church and began to go and do some ministry somewhere else and, and, and came back and was somehow like different. Like I had, I had just, somebody said you did. That, that's a story for another day, but thank you, Ron. <laughs> that is a little bit of, of the story that happened with me. I did grow up in this church, go off and kind of grow up a little bit, not kind of, but grow up a lot of bit, and then come back and get to minister. And, and there was something that Jesus had that was similar to that, that he, he comes to his, the synagogue where he grew up, and he has this opportunity to read scripture. Now, it is believed that there was a specific reading designated for that day, and this is why Jesus was asked to read. In fact, I was just doing some studying on this moment just this week, and I heard something really interesting that is a take on this, that some scholars actually believe that in that day there was a fear that the copies of God's word, the Torah, were going to be destroyed by the enemies of the people of Israel. And so they were either hiding the copies of the Torah or they were protecting them, certainly not handing them out. Like I asked you what Bible you brought to church today, and I could go and find a bonus Bible sitting on our church campus. This was not an option for you if you were living in Jesus' day. The, the word of God was guarded and kept because it was under attack from the enemies of God's people. And I, I don't just mean spiritually, I mean physically. And so this particular scholar that I was studying this week, he he says he proposes that it is very likely that distinct families within the community would have designated to them passages, multiple passages of scripture that they would either be responsible to read and steward and also probably to even memorize. So then during the calendar year, there would be certain Sabbath services in the synagogue where every single Sabbath service, there was a distinct set of readings that would happen, and your family would be on the schedule to come and be the reader when it was your turn, when your family scripture came up. So some scholars actually believe that Jesus went on that particular day because it was his family's turn to read the scripture because Isaiah 61 had come up in the reading schedule. Now, this actually really makes sense in terms of the way things were done back in those days. It certainly wasn't just like spontaneous reading. These things were mapped out and scheduled and read in order on a very timely, in a very timely manner. And then you can further believe that Jesus would have been the one to stand up and read in his synagogue where he grew up as a young person on this specific day where his family would have been chosen to read the passage from Isaiah 61. And it would have been Jesus because he was the oldest male in his household. Most scholars believe that by this time, the adoptive father of Jesus, Joseph, had passed away, that he wasn't in the picture anymore, and that Jesus had most likely become the man of the house, the patriarch of his family, and also, more than likely, the caretaker of his mother, Mary. Now, just as a side note, I told you I'm a little bit of a nerd for this stuff, and so we're going to try not to get bogged down to this into this detail, but Kristen and I were just talking about this this week, and Kristen's a fellow nerd like me, and so we were just kind of chopping it up about all the little details, and we were kind of just having our minds blown about the idea of, like, how did Luke 
get all of these details? How did he hear all of this story? If Luke is about to record later on that the disciples are going to be called, the idea is that Jesus doesn't have disciples yet. He's building up his reputation as a rabbi. So how in the world did all of these stories get recorded by Dr. Luke if he wasn't there? Well, scholars believe, Kristen and I think, that it's very likely that the person that told Luke the stories is Mary. If Jesus is Mary's caretaker because Joseph isn't in the picture, it's likely that Mary traveled with Jesus when he was baptized, that she may have been there standing at the side of the water watching her son be baptized and then tells Luke the story later on. Traveled 80 miles back up to the region of, Ga of Galilee, travels around all of the synagogues, is being cared for by Jesus in this period. This is, I, I'm not telling you gospel facts. I'm saying this, it is likely, based on the culture and the circumstances of the moment, that Mary was there for all of these moments. And then Luke shows up on the, on the scene later as a disciple, and he gets to know Mary because she's hanging out all the time. And then she begins to tell him, oh, Luke, you have no idea about the stuff that you didn't get to see when you weren't around yet. You missed it. Yeah, you missed it. And so she tells Luke all of the stuff that he missed. And so it's very likely that Mary is the one who was telling the story and that she was in the synagogue when her son stands up to read from Isaiah 61 because it was her family's designated time during the calendar year to read that passage of Scripture. I'm telling you all of this, number one, so that with me, maybe you can be amazed at the details in the gospel and how every single little thing matters and communicates something to us. Uh, but I think also it's, it's important for you to understand that Jesus probably didn't just like stand, he didn't just show up to church and go, hey, I have a spontaneous word, I'd like to share something today, and because he's a really charismatic guy, he just took over the moment, and, or he, he wasn't invited to be the, the traveling itinerant guest speaker, this was him going home, doing something that was probably very scheduled, and re reading Isaiah 61 was written into the calendar, and I don't think that that takes away any of the power of what Jesus is saying. In fact, I think it's incredibly important that maybe we even consider there's a chance that Jesus has read this in this very room before. Maybe in the previous year. This might have been the 20th time that he's read this exact passage. And so then he's going to sit down and he's going to do some, some stuff. He's going to talk. And, and, and I'll tell you, we'll, we'll talk about all of this a little bit more next week. But what happens as a result of Jesus standing up, reading, and then it says that he sits down and all the eyes were on him. They were all amazed and all of that. And then some more things happen that we'll talk about next Sunday. Just so you know, what's about to happen, we'll get into it next week, is Jesus almost gets himself killed too soon. And we're going to read about that next week. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that Jesus made a mistake. There's a ton of details, and we'll get into it. We need to take a whole other Sunday just to talk about the details of how Jesus almost gets himself killed too soon. So come next Sunday if you want to know how Jesus gets himself out of a pickle. That's next Sunday. Today, what I want to, what I want to talk to you about is the mission of Jesus. Jesus stands up and reads Isaiah 61, and then what he says when he sits down is, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What he's saying is, as he sits to, to, and, and says those words, what he's saying is, what I just read to you, that's my mission. Me being here fulfills all of that. 
And so I, I want to just walk with you through the elements of the mission of Jesus. My hope is twofold. Number one, that you will be ministered to by the mission of Jesus. There might be an element of the mission of Jesus today that as you listen to that, you will just go, oh, thank God that that's his mission because I really need that in this season that I'm in. And you can be encouraged that Jesus is on mission for you, that he completed the mission for you. And then the second hope that I have as you listen to the mission of Jesus is that you also remember that you were given the mission. That there's an element that Jesus says, I want to minister this to you. This is the mission I have for your life. May you be blessed and encouraged by it. May it change your life. But as it changes your life, also take up the mission and join me, partner with me in completing or carrying out this mission for other people. And so as you're listening, think through what are the places where this mission ministers and speaks to your heart or heals something in your own life? And what are the places where God might say to you, go on mission on behalf of somebody else that you know? So there's six points here today that we're going to try to get through relatively quickly. I promise you I'll try to be less detail-oriented than I have been so far as we are going through these six points of the mission. But first, we do need to just say one more thing before we get into the six details of the mission of Jesus. And that is something I've already said to you this morning. I've read it to you more than once. And that is that it is very, very important the context of this mission. Not just the context physically, but the context spiritually of this mission. You see, Luke couches this entire mission statement declaration by, in, in one very, very important thing. And it's the very first thing that we read this morning in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. It says, he returned in the power of the Spirit. And the first thing that Jesus says as he opens the scroll and he begins to declare what his mission is, is he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Obviously, we can think back to just a few weeks ago as we were talking about the baptism of Jesus, and the Father says from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and then also the Spirit comes in the form of a dove and lands on Jesus, and this is a, an indicator, a picture of, certainly of the Trinity being all together in one place, but also of the baptism or the anointing or the empowerment, if you will, of Jesus for the mission. And so this is, uh, this is part of the thing that is really, really important for us to understand is that Jesus gives you a mission and that he himself didn't even begin his own mission until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and he did that for a significant purpose, maybe a multi-layered purpose. And one of, the, one of the reasons that Jesus made it a point to not begin his mission until he was baptized by the Holy Spirit was so that when he sends you out on mission, that you don't go out also without the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to be with you and to empower you and speak to you and through you as you partner with God. And this is why uh, Luke later on in Acts chapter 1 records Jesus saying right before he ascends to heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, it says, Luke writes, that Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the Father's promise which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So, friends, the mission of Jesus is so incredibly massive 
that Jesus himself, the Son of God himself, didn't begin the mission until he had received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true for Jesus, who is in very fact and reality God, then how much more true do you think it is for that person sitting next to you today? Or for you yourself? You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now, having said all of that, let's begin to break down what it is that Jesus says his mission is. He begins by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, number one, to preach the gospel to the poor. You probably know this, but the word gospel is a word which means good news. And so Jesus says, I I have been sent, I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to tell the good news. The word preach means to declare or to inform or proclaim or to announce. He is saying, the Spirit of the Lord came upon me so that I can announce and instruct about and inform people about the good news. And by the way, the audience that Jesus points out tells us something about the good news specifically. Because there's all kinds of gospels. There's all kinds of good news, right? Uh, Like you've heard the gospel... Uh, of of your of of getting a degree, you've heard the gospel of having a, a job. You've heard the gospel of finances, right? Uh, you, the the good news about money is the more you have, the more things that you can buy, right? It's a very limited gospel, but it is good news, right? The gospel of friendship, the gospel of community, the more friends that you have, the more uh, life you have around you, you. You understand what I mean? The good news. Uh, Some of you preach the gospel of your favorite sports team, or you preach the good news. Like we we just celebrated on on online, somebody from the university where I get to teach uh, got engaged. That's like a form of gospel. They're telling the good news. Hey, I'm gonna be not alone for the rest of my life. Praise the Lord. Uh, That was that was exciting for them. It It was good news. And there's, so there's all kinds of good news. And some of you are like, my good news is I'm alone. Ha, leave me alone, right? So you can, good news is different to different people, but so it's important then to consider the audience. So Jesus comes to teach the good news to who? To the poor. Now, according to Jesus, as you follow through the, the, the broad brushstrokes of his teaching ministry, poverty is not about having no money. That according to Jesus, he actually tells us that poverty is about having no kingdom, or, or rather, not having the kingdom of God. Jesus, on multiple occasions, talks about the kingdom like it's a treasure or something that makes people rich. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and then reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. The idea here is that Jesus is trying to tell you the kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure. And so then if you follow what Jesus is teaching us here about the kingdom being the greatest treasure, and he's being sent under the anointing of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to the poor, what he's saying is, I didn't get sent to preach the gospel to people who have no money. I get sent to people who don't yet live in God's kingdom. 
Because the kingdom of God is the thing that will make you richer than anything else. And so if you don't have it, you are poor. In fact, the Christian term or the spiritual language for this would be to say that you are poor in spirit. Right? And Paul actually writes about what it looks like to be poor in spirit. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says, For the wages of sin is death. I mean, that's the kind of paycheck I do not want to earn. But it definitely is one that I have earned. And it depicts a kind of poverty. I am rich in death. Means that I am poor in kingdom life. The good news, though, Romans 6.23 goes on and it says, but the free gift or the gift of God is eternal life. The kingdom. You get to inherit the kingdom. So the mission of God is fulfilled when Jesus preaches the good news to the poor. Anytime that we see poor people, people who don't yet have life in the kingdom of heaven, hearing the good news that Jesus has paid their debt spiritually that they owe to God because of their sin, and then, and then when those people place their faith in Jesus, they come alive and become rich in kingdom and in life, receiving the treasure Selling everything else that they've ever had so that they can have this one thing, the treasure or the pearl of great price. And then this is just the beginning, by the way. Jesus says, this is what I've come to do. I've been anointed so that I can preach the good news or the gospel to the poor. And then he goes on to say, the second thing, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now this term brokenhearted actually paints a picture of someone who's experiencing a crushing or a shattering or a breaking in their heart, in their mind, maybe in their character, in their inner life. He's talking about people who are emotionally or mentally or spiritually broken people. Now, the original prophecy in Isaiah 61 uses the term bind up, that, that I have come to bind up the brokenhearted. When I was a kid, I had weak ankles and I loved playing soccer. The problem is that weak ankles and soccer players don't get along very well. And so I would often find myself with sprained or twisted ankles. And I have this vivid memory of myself as a kid sitting down in a chair and having my mom kneeling down in front of me and taking a bandage and wrapping up my ankle. And this happened so many times that eventually I learned how to wrap up other people's ankles and I became the ankle wrapping guy. But I remember what it, what it felt like to have my ankle bound up because it just needed some time to rest. It needed some time to heal. And so Jesus says, I have come, I have been sent so that I can bind up the brokenhearted. There's something interesting there is that Jesus is subtly telling us you cannot work your way into being healed. If I twisted my ankle, it got bound up, and then I didn't get to play or go to the next practice and run around the field. I would have to sit on the sidelines and cheer on the team. There's something about being bound up that implies rest for healing. Now, just as a side note, the good, note about, the good thing about the binding work of Jesus is that sometimes it happens over time, and sometimes in the name of Jesus it happens instantly. 
The point here is not to get bound up in the time that it takes, but to allow Jesus to bind up what is broken in you because we know that only he can actually heal what is actually broken inside of our lives. Consider that Jesus actually says this about himself quite a bit, uh, and this is one of the reasons why we refer to Jesus as the great physician. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it says that Jesus actually says this, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you see how Jesus is making a comparison there? Uh, it's, it's not the healthy people. I didn't come for the righteous, it's the sick people who need a doctor. I didn't call the righteous. I'm calling the sinners. Which, by the way, Jesus has like a workaround there because he's so smart. He says, I'm calling the sinners. And then we go, who are the sinners? And he goes, yes. <laughs> right? We know the reality. When Jesus says he came to bind up the brokenhearted, that's all of us. We all are in need of the great physician to come and bind up what is broken here. But the point here is absolutely clear. It is our sin that makes us sick and leaves us spiritually broken, and Jesus comes to bind us up. Of course, you know that being brokenhearted isn't just about the sin that you committed, though, right? For example, Jesus' binding ministry also covers people who are experiencing grief or depression. Sometimes you just need to be comforted or bound up because your heart is broken. People who are abuse or trauma survivors need to be bound up. Jesus comes for that. The demonized need to be bound up in the love of Jesus because perfect love casts out fear, also casts out demons. Uh, the suffering, those who are suffering from chemical imbalances that result in mental health issues need to be bound up by the love of Jesus. And and then anything else that results in a loss of a person's God-given identity. These are people who need to be bound up by the love of Jesus. And by the way, as we use the language that Jesus comes to bind you up, there is a lie that the devil loves to tell you is that Jesus actually comes to constrain and constrict you and suffocate the life out of you. And what we understand in, in our spiritual maturity and those of us who have experienced true freedom in the name of Jesus is that when God comes to wrap me up, the devil wants me to feel constrained here, but this is actually the place of the beginning of freedom, right? The more I'm bound up in him, the more I am healed. And wisdom actually says, God, bind me up and don't let me run around and do whatever I want. Constrain me. I welcome that. This is what wisdom would actually say. But what Jesus is really actually talking about here is that everyone who is brokenhearted, to him, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Whatever it is that burned you out, that made you weary, that broke your heart or put a burden on you, in Matthew 11, 20, 11 28, we see Jesus say, come and I will give you rest. I'll bind you up. I will love you in me you will be safe. Amen? Now, if you're beginning to wonder about what it would look like for this to flow out of your life, of course, uh, Jesus also wants to employ you as a physician's assistant. 
And so this is where I think we begin to see the, the ministry of Jesus or the mission of Jesus function in and also through our own lives because the mission of Jesus is accomplished certainly as Jesus comes and binds us up in his love, but also as other people, followers of Jesus, offer love and community and honesty and safety to other people who just need to be bound up in the love and the comfort of Jesus. So very practically speaking, this can look like giving a person who is going through grief or pain a hug. I mean, have you ever experienced being given a hug, and then at the end of that hug, you realize that it healed something in you, and maybe you didn't even know you needed a good hug, right? Uh, perhaps meeting a therapist, speaking with somebody who has tools and resources and training and how to help you be led to Jesus who will heal you. This can be one of the ways that we partner with Jesus on this mission, or, or maybe just by sitting and listening to a person share their story with you is a great way that you can help a person feel bound up, and certainly also by praying for a person to be comforted as they grieve, or being delivered from demonic oppression that leads to depression or anxiety and so on. So the mission of Jesus is fulfilled as the poor hear the gospel being preached and as the brokenhearted are bound up in his love. And third, Jesus says that he is sent, anointed by the Holy Spirit, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And this phrase is not complicated. It means exactly what it sounds like. There are people who are captive, who are, who are bound in the negative sense, who are under bondage. And Jesus says, I came to tell all of those people, you're set free. You are set free. So the question is, what kind of captives does Jesus come to proclaim liberty to? Now, captivity is a word uh, directed at people bound in physical and also spiritual bondage. So Jesus proclaims liberty to all captives, people who are captive to sin, the captive to demons, the captives to addictions, the captive to physical uh, abuse or, or physical captivity, the enslaved, and then also the social captives those being oppressed uh, by social structures uh, or uh, dictating governments, uh, Jesus would come to say, even you, I have come to set you at liberty. Now, this is the proclamation of being set at liberty. And what we want to understand here is that for all of the ways we work to partner with Jesus, it is important that we remember that Jesus is the one who comes to proclaim liberty. Jesus is the key to free people from any kind of bondage. Amen? So uh, we, we see Jesus fulfill this mission every single time, for example, that he casts out a demon. There are 12 recorded separate instances of Jesus casting out demons. And just in case you are wondering, there's not a single one of those 12 instances where Jesus says, hey, demon, could you get out of here? And then it's difficult for Jesus to do that. This is really, really important. Jesus never has a hard time with the demonic. Jesus never has to wrestle against, right? Well, now, he has a conversation with a guy about some pigs, and that's an interesting story. But that wasn't Jesus having a struggle. That was Jesus having a conversation. So it's important to understand that Jesus never has a problem, but Jesus is also the key, along with freedom from demonic oppression and bondage, he's also the key to set people free from social bondage. We see Jesus fulfilling this mission when he points to a higher kingdom than the world's kingdom and order. He's saying that whatever it is that has bound you up in the structures and the systems of the world, I'm coming to tell you that 
There is a higher kingdom. I have authority as the prince of peace, the part of a, a, a higher kingdom that is above whatever it is that is putting you under its thumb. You see, Jesus' authority is rooted in a kingdom that is higher than any kingdom or power or authority in this world. Which is really important because just last week during the temptation conversation that Jesus had with the devil, the devil says to him, you remember? He says, the whole, all the kingdoms of the world have been given to me and I have the authority to give the power over the world, over the kingdoms of the world to whoever I want. So if you just worship me, then you also could have the power over the world. And Jesus says, don't worship anybody but the Lord your God. So what he's saying is the authority of God which he's saying the authority of himself is greater than any other kind of authority. So where we see people in bondage, Jesus says, I have come anointed by the Holy Spirit and set apart for this purpose, to tell those bound up, you are free. Or it doesn't have to be this way anymore. Amen? So the mission of Jesus is fulfilled as he preaches the gospel to the poor, as he brings healing to the brokenhearted, as he proclaims liberty to the captives, and fourth, as he comes to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. And of course, this definitely can mean physical blindness. Absolutely. God is in the miracle working business still today. Amen? Right. Okay, good. So, where we see physical bodies that are not functioning according to their design, Jesus offers healing and wholeness. However, we also know that Jesus is in the teaching business, and this is more aligned with what he's trying to communicate here. As he's saying, I came to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, where we see worldviews and philosophies that are blind to the truth, Jesus offers the eyes to see what the world has hidden from them. So proclaiming sight to the blind is primarily about spiritual blindness. The Apostle Paul wrote about it like this in his letter to the Corinthians. He had written a couple of letters. This is the second one. And what we see as 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the devil's work is to blind the eyes of the people of the world so that they cannot see the truth of the good news about Jesus. But Jesus comes to do what? To proclaim and to restore sight to the blind. You see, God has been communicating his love for mankind from day one, from the very, very beginning. He, Jesus comes to say, I, I showed up so that you could see it. And as we partner with Jesus, we go so that other people can have their vision healed and they can see the good news about Jesus. And so, the mission of Jesus is fulfilled as he preaches the gospel to the poor, as he brings healing to the brokenhearted, as he proclaims liberty to those who are captives and proclaims sight to the blind. And fifth, Jesus says the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he has been sent to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now the first time I ever read this, I thought that felt redundant because didn't he just proclaim liberty to the captives and now he's going to set at liberty the captives? That feels 
Like he's saying the same thing. Didn't you just say that, God? But here, it's almost as if in Isaiah 61, and then Jesus, as he reads this as declaring his own mission, it's almost as if God is saying, I need you to understand the mission I'm on is not just about what I say. I'm not all talk. I came to do what I said I would do. So I'm proclaiming, and notice the order, I'm proclaiming to you that you are at liberty. Then I'm going to offer you recovery of sight so that you can see the liberty. And then I'm going to set you at liberty. Imagine if you were in a jail cell and God walks into the jail and stands on the other side of the bars, holds up a key and says, I am unlocking the gate that you're, I'm, I'm unlocking the prison cell, and you are, in the name of me, free. Under my authority, you are free. Right? And then opens the gate and says, look, pay attention. The door is open. You can be free. And this is actually, friends, where a lot of Christians get to and get stuck. Because Jesus has come in and said, you are free. See how you are free. And then we think Jesus just disappeared. Well, the reality is that for a lot of us, we're sitting in an open jail cell, and Jesus says, this is, this is why I said now I'm coming to set at liberty the captives, right? Because it's not enough for you just to know that you could leave. Jesus says, get out. Right? And so we stay stuck, and Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. I I meant it. You need to, like, get up and leave the room that you were in and come and be free with me. Do you understand this? Okay, so we receive the mission of Jesus as we not only hear that he's told us that we're free, but that as we begin to see the hope of the freedom that we've been offered that isn't just you die at some point and go to heaven, lucky you, (laughs) but that in this life, you now get to live as a free person, completely free. And we minister this mission of Jesus as we do the work of justice to see where people are in bondage and say, Jesus already said it doesn't have to be this way anymore. Can't you begin to see? It's okay. You can borrow some of my faith and ability to see what Jesus has done. I can see that you could be free. Will you walk with me into freedom? Right? And that looks like preaching the gospel to people so that they can see where they're spiritually bound up. Come on and get out. Practice spiritual disciplines that free people practice so that you can learn what it feels like to breathe free air. Right? And it also, you can take a seat, Dennis. Thank you so much. Dennis doesn't sit in the front row very often, but when he does, I'm always tempted to use him as a sermon illustration. Uh, but, but this also, very practically, can I say, isn't just a work of preaching the gospel to people. It is going to places where people are physically bound and finding ways to do the work of justice so that they can be physically free. Right? This is, this is how we partner with the mission of Jesus, is that we go on mission with him. Amen? 
All right, so you understand that. I was going to read to you like 30 more verses just to get that point proven, but you're so smart, I think you get it. Let's move on to the sixth thing that Jesus says. Um, let's, let's do a quick review before we get into the last thing. So Jesus says that his mission is fulfilled as he preaches the gospel to the poor, brings healing to the brokenhearted, proclaims liberty to the captives, proclaims then sight to the blind, and then sets at liberty the captives. And then finally, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do these things. I've been sent by God, finally, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, uh, the, the purpose of, of Jesus' mission actually comes full circle here. Uh, he, he starts out by saying what? I've, I've, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim or to preach the good news to the poor. And then the last thing that he says is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, what is he talking about? Well, the acceptable year of the Lord is something that his hearers would have automatically understood because they'd also studied Isaiah 61 and there were good Jewish people in the synagogue in that moment. They would have understood that Jesus was talking about something that we might refer to as the year of Jubilee. Now, I am not going to take time to to, uh, explain to you all of the things about the year of Jubilee. That would take a good chunk of time. Uh, I don't have time for that today. Just go with me for this one second. The year of Jubilee was meant to happen on a recurring schedule that every so often all of the people's debts were, were forgiven and land was returned and people were set free. That's the idea of the year of Jubilee. And this was meant to be a physical practice for the people of Israel. And the reason that they had this physical practice... Uh, one of the reasons among the multifaceted reasons why this was just a good idea, one of the reasons was to point in a spiritual sense to a future jubilee. So this jubilee would happen every so often, but there was a future hope that one day the year of jubilee would begin and it would never end. And so Jesus reads Isaiah 61 And he says, I've come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord or the year of Jubilee. And then he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. So Jesus' ministry or mission is to declare that this year is the year of Jubilee. And in case you were wondering about next year, that's also going to be the year of Jubilee. And the year after, he's saying, we have entered in to the acceptable year of the Lord. Or the year of the Lord's favor is another way that this is described. We've entered into the perpetual freedom season. So I've come to the poor to tell them the good news, that the Messiah is here. Hooray! We can enter into the kingdom. And then comes full circle by saying, I have come to proclaim that right now is the year of Jubilee. Now, that's really, really important for people. And I don't know if you know any of these people, but you know the kinds of people who have sinned like every day? Don't look at your neighbor. (laughs) Married people, don't look at your spouse. Okay. It's you. I'm talking about you. Surprise, 
you're imperfect. This is an interesting thing that happens for people who follow Jesus, where they receive the gospel and then they go, oh yeah, I'll come out of the jail cell. And then they find themselves falling into sin again and, and then they go, I, I must, this, actually is, this is actually where I'm supposed to live. I actually don't get freedom anymore because I did the thing. And Jesus says, I, I actually came to set you completely free with a kind of freedom that can't go back to being enslaved. When, by the way, when you fall back into sin because it turns out that you're a human being, and the only person who ever lived and didn't fall into any kind of sin was Jesus, which is what made him eligible to declare the year of Jubilee, right? He's the only one. So for the rest of us, we really need perpetual freedom and grace. And so Jesus says, I've come to declare to you that freedom, life, eternal jubilee has begun. I'm here to give it to you, and you don't have to go back. This is good news, friends. I mean, this should be super encouraging if you've ever struggled with any kind of sin. If you've ever breathed oxygen, this should be encouraging. A jubilee means that as God's children, we are freely given the inheritance that sin robbed us from. To receive freedom and favor and eternal life and an identity as the royal children and priests of God. So Jesus' mission has six directives. To preach the gospel or the good news to the poor. To heal or bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And of course, I said this before, and I've said it a few times throughout, that Jesus' mission is also your mission. It is our mission. If you are a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, John 20, verse 21 says, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Meaning, under all of the same parameters, go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't go until you have the power of the Holy Spirit, but the way I was sent, I'm sending you out that way. He's saying, here are the keys. Go do the same job I've been doing for the last few years. So Jesus, his mission is fulfilled as we partner with him in his mission. Certainly also as we receive his mission and it changes our own lives. But this is also why scripture calls Jesus' followers priests and ambassadors. Let me read to you a couple of more passages of scripture quickly and then we will move towards a conclusion. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness, who set you when you were oppressed and in the jail cell, who set you free, so you can proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of 
reconciliation. The mission was for you, and now it is your mission as well. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the the language of the mission that we're supposed to go on is that we say we were reconciled to God through Jesus. Would you also be reconciled to God through Jesus? And so having said all of these things today, as I'm talking to people who many of you I know personally as ambassadors and priests, meaning you are followers of the way of Jesus, I, I feel like it's important for us to ask two vital questions today. And then we're going to pray. The first question that you need to have an answer to, or you certainly do have an answer to, is this, have you received the good news? The good news that ushers you into the year of Jubilee. Have you, have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you received the mission of Jesus? Or has, have you become a disciple? You see, there's a million different ways that I can ask you the same question. Are you a Christian? Has Jesus changed your Life, are you set free? The second question would be, to whom has God sent you on mission? Jesus was sent on mission to you. Somebody else in the name of Jesus was also sent in partnership with Jesus on mission to you. And that's why you know Jesus. And so to whom are you sent? on mission. We're going to end our service today in prayer. And I want to invite you, we do this from time to time, and we've already done this a little bit this morning, so this won't be too much of an unfamiliar practice to anybody in the room, but I'm going to invite you to take a moment and pray with the person sitting next to you, or maybe a couple of people sitting around you. Here's how we're going to pray. I want you to take a moment. We're going to pray in two phases this morning. The first is I want you to pray with a few neighbors to, in whatever way you need to, receive the ministry of Jesus. So it it might be that you're in a small group of people and somebody might look at you and go, I actually haven't prayed to become a follower of Jesus. I I would like to pray right now in this moment. I receive the ministry of Jesus and receive the good news, and he's going to change my life right now. And you can pray with the person sitting next to you to become a follower of Jesus, a, a child of God. And it is as simple as praying, and then it is challenging as living the rest of your life in relationship with Jesus. But that's why we have community, because we cannot and do not do this alone. But that might be the prayer that you would pray. Or maybe you would pray, you know what, there's a place in my life where I've been set free, uh, but I just, I, I don't live as if I'm a free person. And so I need to come out of the cell and I'm just receiving the freedom of Jesus. Or, or today I'm just praying that my eyes would be open to see more of God. And so take a moment and begin to pray with a neighbor right now. And then I'll give you just a minute to pray with uh, the people around you. And then I'll give you the next phase of our prayer ministry over the next moment. So go now and turn with at least one or two people around you and take a minute and pray as you are inspired by the word of the Lord.
As you are uh, wrapping up this moment of prayer, the second phase of this prayer is simply to pray together for others for whom you are sent on mission. And so pray together just by name, people that you know that are far from God or need to be set at liberty in the name of Jesus. Just begin to name them before the Lord together. As we receive prayer for ourselves, we also turn and pray for others. Jesus, we thank you that you came on a mission, that that mission was us. We thank you for all of the, the facets and the aspects of your mission. We thank you for the detail that, that Dr. Luke gets into in his telling of your story. And we are grateful that through the gospel, we can see you, the Savior. We are thankful. God, thank you that you extend your mission to us, but then you also extend your mission through us to others. And so as we've named people before you today, Lord, would you use us and use other people around those that we've named before you to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus into their life, into their hearing. May they hear and receive the gospel. May their, they have their eyes uncovered to be able to see the good news and may they be set at liberty in the name of Jesus. Friends, as we end our gathering here together today, I want to pray a blessing over you, and then I'll give you one more instruction before we uh, end our, our service here today. And my blessing would simply be this for you this morning. May you be in the name of Jesus, free and healed and able to see and live in the favor of the Lord. May your cup overflow from the goodness of God in your life, being poured out into the lives of those around you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.